All right, good evening, everybody. I appreciate you being with us for our evening service. As you know, tonight we're going to be discussing women in the pulpit, and I've uh, specifically worded it that way. I didn't say women in the ministry. That's a different subject, although we will touch on that tonight. But we're going to be talking about women in the pulpit. You can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2, so long, but uh, we will obviously be moving around quite a bit in Scripture tonight. And uh, I'm going to start with a word of prayer and then make a couple of statements just before we get into it to lay a bit a little, a little bit of groundwork. And uh, Lord willing, this will be a help to you tonight. Father, please help us as we go through these scriptures. Lord, this can be a sensitive subject, but uh, Lord, as, as we know, you said there in the book of Psalms, great peace have they that love thy law, nothing shall offend them. Lord, it's not our intention to be offensive in any way, but uh, we do want to approach this thoughtfully and with sensitivity. And uh, Lord, help us to cover it honestly. And I pray that you might minister to our hearts tonight. Please help me, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to say these things, not just the right things, but saying them the right way and for the right reasons. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Um, so a couple of statements I want to make just before we get deep into this. Number one, and I think this is abundantly obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm not a professional YouTuber. Now, for those of you that are in our church and watching this, which I, I would assume that's the only people watching this at the moment, uh, you know that. I, God has not called me to have a YouTube ministry. I do think that there are some people that are very gifted at this particular mode of ministry and more power to them. I'm not knocking it at all. I'm not a professional YouTuber. Now, I, the reason I say that is I'm not seeking to be popular. Right, I'm not, I'm not, I do not count myself as a pastor to all people. The reason I, I am online and live streaming right now is because of the government regulations and the lockdown. That's what kind of drove us to this uh, mode of, of ministry here. Uh, but I, I do not think that uh, you know, you're going to find every piece of information on this topic or any topic just on our YouTube channel. I'm not pretending to be that. And I, I want you to realize that when I'm teaching these things, I'm doing so because of the questions that get asked me by my own church here, by our church members and, and people within our community, within our little sphere of life here. So the things that I'm addressing are more of the questions and concerns that that I receive. So I'm just trying to lay that groundwork so that you know this, I'm not pretending that this is every aspect of this particular topic. We're gonna cover everything tonight, not by any means. Uh, I will try to cover as much as I can in the time allotted for us, uh, but just be aware of that. I'm not a professional at this. So if you see me pausing, looking for what button to hit, uh, you know, I do the best I can to put the slides uh, down below me and try to keep up with that. But guys, not a professional at this. Uh, second thing I want to say is this topic, although there is a lot of debate about it, tonight's lesson is not a debate. Now, that is not to say that I have the final word and everything I say is gospel and true and you just have to accept it. I'm not saying that. There's a time and a place. I'm very open to discussion on this. God knows I have read a number of things and listened to sermons and lessons and had many discussions, profitable ones, not heated ones. I get asked about this a lot. And people that, that are asking, you know, sometimes they have a chip on their shoulder. Sometimes they just want to know. Sometimes it's men, sometimes it's women. Uh, but tonight it's not a debate. 
And I'm, I'm saying that because I love it when you guys use the chat section. It really, really makes a difference. I can't tell you how encouraging it is because I, there's no one in the room with me. I can't see if anybody's getting it. I don't know if, that, if what I just said was confusing or helpful. So when somebody drops a, a message in the, you know, a comment in the chat section, it's helpful. However, with a topic like this, maybe something I say is going to rub you the wrong way. So please, please be respectful, be kind, be courteous. I'm open if you have questions about the topic, please put them in the chat section. And it, from time to time, I'll look over there and check it and maybe I can help. Maybe it's something that I would want to address in you know, a different time, but I, I'm, just, I'm just putting that out there. Be kind with this, okay? Uh, it's not, as I prayed, it's not my intention to be uh, insensitive or offensive, just trying to approach this biblically tonight. All right, so women in the pulpit, what does the Bible have to say about it? Let's, let's first address this. First thing I want to say about it. The source of the confusion. Why is this such an issue? Does the confusion come from society or does it come from Scripture? What I mean to say here is if you read the Bible, right? You didn't listen to anybody else's opinion. You just read the Bible. Would you end up confused? Would you end up going, hmm, I wonder if a woman is supposed to be in the pulpit during a church service leading the service? Would you walk away thinking, yeah, the Bible's just ambiguous and it's not really clear on this topic? Now, I'm of the persuasion that the scripture offers a very clear view on this. And by the grace of God, by the end of the lesson tonight, I hope to present that. So I think the confusion is coming in from society. I think what happens is people come to the Bible with a chip on their shoulder. They come to the Bible with some bitterness, with some preconceived notions. They have been told all their life that men are chauvinistic and that Christianity is a male-dominated thing. And, and they've, they've been made to think negatively about these subjects. They've been made to think that Christianity and the Bible is oppressive, that Paul was a chauvinist and those kind of things. And therefore, when they read these passages, they have this in mind already. And because society has been pressuring them into thinking, you know what, men and women, we, are, we, we must be doing the same things. Right. It's wrong to say that there are male roles and there are female roles, that men are supposed to do this and women are supposed to do that. So society has told them that's wrong, that's, that's oppressive, whatever word they want to use. And because of that, it, it makes it very difficult then to read verses like we're going to look at tonight, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14, when it says something like, you can see in verse 12 there, I suffer not a woman to teach. Whoa, why is he prohibiting certain things about a woman. Why, why limit her? And if you've already been told by society that the Bible is this horrible book or Christians are oppressive and chauvinistic, well then I think that's gonna skew your, your vision here a little bit. Furthermore, if you're already, you've already determined in your heart and in your mind, a woman should be allowed in the pulpit. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what the Bible says. That's my conclusion. Well, a lot of folks do. They've already made up their mind and they approach the Bible with a conclusion in mind and then they're going to rework the text and 
almost rework the context in some cases to make it fit their preconceived notion of how things ought to be. So as we know, in 1 Corinthians 14, the Bible says God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And I think the confusion on this topic is not produced by Scripture, but it's from society. So many voices saying so many things. Now, can you find periods in history, and does it still exist today, that there are male chauvinists? And that even within the church, that there are certain doctrines and abuses. Let's let's call it abuse. abuse. They abuse certain scriptures in order to for, for a man to dominate a woman whether it's in the church or at home or in the workplace or something like that. Are there people that do those kind of things, that use Scripture to support bad behavior? Yes. But can I also point out quickly that those are the minority? That is not the majority view at all. Of course, I'm, I'm familiar with those kind of things. I know they happen, but I've never tried to do that. Uh, I don't think that the position I hold and what I teach would be considered oppressive or abusive. I, I am married to the most wonderful woman in the world. I cannot tell you how valuable she is in my personal life, in my public life, in our ministry. I know, having been away for, from her now for almost four weeks, and I cannot wait for her to get back. I'm so glad she's there with our family in the States and enjoying our second grandbaby. And Oh, that's wonderful. But man, I miss her. Her price is far above rubies. So I, 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 it really is not nice when the mistakes of the few get, let's say, the blame right for the mistakes of the few gets put on everybody. So a few men have a wrong attitude about women, and now every man has to pay for it. Because you met one or two male chauvinists, now every man's a pig. Come on, that's not fair. That is just not fair. It, it's the same, by the way, since I'm, I'm already teaching a sensitive subject, maybe I can just throw this out here as well. As well. It's the same as saying that there, were, that, that there were white men that were racist, and, and there were white people that had, you know, a white regime that set up a racist system. Therefore, all white people are racist. Come on, that's not true. That is not true. Would it be fair to say I, I had black people break into my house and steal things and therefore all black people are thieves? Come on, that's ridiculous. I hope I'm not getting in too much trouble already. <laughs> I'm just trying to make a point. You can't take the mistakes of the few and blame it on everybody. You can't make an, an umbrella you know, come to an umbrella conclusion that everybody's guilty of that. So if we just let the scripture speak on these topics, I think that it will be abundantly clear. Now, what I decided to do, the way I want to approach this tonight, is I'm going to first give you some of the other views that I've come across, some of the other explanations for why women should be allowed in the pulpit. And after we go through, there's several of them, and by no means am I covering all of them, but I'm, I'm going to try to cover the ones that I come across the most. And after we've covered them, then I'm going to try to walk you through the relevant passages, and uh, I think that will give you a, a pretty decent grasp of the whole subject. So let's, let's work our way through some various views that you might come across. All right, this is one that I just heard today, actually, in uh, preparation for this. this. This caught me by surprise. 
One view is, it, and they take it from 1 Timothy 2, specifically verse 12. Maybe I can highlight that verse instead. Um, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So the way some people approach this is to say that in Ephesus, because Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus, Paul's writing to him while he's in that city. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know that the Ephesians were worshipers of the goddess Diana. So the if you understand the history of that uh, faith system of, of worshiping Diana, there were female priestesses. I hope that's the right word for it. And it was a female-dominated religion. Men were considered inferior. So when Christianity comes to Ephesus, according to some folks, what might have been happening is there's a man in the church preaching, and Paul is saying, listen, it's not right for a woman to step up and replace the pastor just because he's a man. So that's the slide below me. Don't try to replace the pastor just because he's a man. Because the Ephesians were used to seeing women in leadership roles during religious services. So that's why Paul wrote this to Timothy. I, the problem with that, I believe you can see in verse number 12, but to be in silence. If Paul was simply saying, listen, don't replace the man just because he's a man, what do we do with the last phrase there? Right? He says, I, I don't allow a woman to teach, nor, nor, there's an extra thing here, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So during a religious service, Paul says, I, I don't allow the woman to be up there leading the service, teaching the congregation nor to usurp authority over the man. She can't stand up, interrupt the man, take his place, whether it's a once-off thing or a permanent thing. She, she can't do that, not supposed to do that, but to be in silence. And we'll cover more of the, the silence aspect a little later on. But I don't think this approach to the passage is going to work to say, well, it was the Ephesians thing and it was just meant for them. And I think with the next one, you'll see a little bit more when we try to localize it and say, well, it was just for the Ephesians because of their background, their women were a bit more aggressive. So Paul had to limit them. No, Paul is laying out not just for the Ephesians, but you're going to see here for the Corinthians as well. This is another um, explanation that I've heard. Corinthian women were especially rebellious. So the prohibition uh, only applied to them. So let me bring you to this passage over here. And I assume most of you are probably familiar with these verses already. Let your women keep silence in the churches. So the emphasis that they, they, uh, that they point out here, or the thing that they point out here, let your women keep silence. So it's just your women, not all women, just your women. Now again, that's how I've heard it explained on occasion. Maybe you've heard a different way of explaining this point, but they said the Corinthian women were very bad. Okay, I don't know of any verse in Scripture anywhere that says the Corinthian women were any worse or any better than the women in another city. I, I don't read that. Same thing with 1 Timothy, right? Paul's addressing Timothy. It seems as if Paul could have left a hint as to why he, if it was meant just for the Ephesians, Paul could have pointed that out, but he didn't. Again, here, he just says, let your women keep silence in the church is plural, right? If this was meant just for the Corinthian women, 
then why say churches plural when Paul is writing to one church? Strangely enough, the verse before it, look at this, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. It seems that Paul is addressing things that now, obviously there was there were issues in the Corinthian church and that's why Paul's bringing it up. The, the women were not abiding by these the, the proper order that God had established and uh, people were abusing the gift of tongues. That's a subject for another time. So Paul's addressing a lot of issues that the Corinthians had, but the things Paul is saying or the things he, yeah, he, he's addressing here, they're applicable to all churches. So let your women keep silence in the churches. Now, just come down to verse 36. Notice something else here. What? Came the word of God out from you? What's he getting at? I think he's saying, guys, do you think you're like rewriting the Bible? Do you think that you're going to say, just ignore all the other revelation, the Old Testament, every other piece of scripture, and now God has showed us another way to do things. So we can ignore what God said. If you look at the end of verse 34, the precedent or the, uh, the standard that Paul's using, they're commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. So there is a standard. We have a final authority that we can turn to to, to straighten us out and order us. And now he's saying, what? Guys, do you think the word of God originates with you and you can just make it up as you go? It's not like that. Or came it unto you only? Interesting. That's, that seems to speak directly against this particular explanation that Paul is just addressing the problem in Corinth and that it's not applicable everywhere. He's saying, guys, this is not just for you. It didn't come only to you. All right, so that's another argument I've heard. I don't think it's a very good one. And this is another one I've heard. It's acceptable as long as the husband allows it. I was listening to Joyce Meyer one day. I was doing my homework on this. This was years ago now. So I cannot remember what the setting was. I, I heard it on YouTube somewhere. But this, when somebody asked her point blank, why is it okay for you to be in the ministry even though there's verses against it? This was one of the things that, that she said, if, if my memory serves me correctly. She said, it's acceptable as long as, in, in her case, my husband allows it. Now, this comes from uh, the idea of verse 34 and 35. Uh, 34, rather. 35 is a kind of a different issue, but you can see the husband mentioned there. But verse 34, they're supposed to be under obedience. So the explanation that was given that, that day was, well, I am under obedience. I'm not doing anything in rebellion to my husband. So my husband allows this. He's perfectly fine with it. So this, this, I've, I'm following the verse. Um, then the problem is, what do we do with verse 35? Let them, let them go home and talk to their husbands about it. It's just that, that explanation about when my husband allows it doesn't seem to work I, it, with the context. Furthermore, it just doesn't seem to work logically, right? Just because your husband says it's okay, you can do it. Paul just said, let the women keep silence. But if your husband says, no, no, you don't have to be silent. You can stand up and speak. Then it's okay. I, I find that, I mean, logically, that just doesn't seem to work well. And then, I mean, how far down the line does this go? If scripture prohibits something else, thou shalt not. And your husband says, eh, it's okay if you shalt. 
Well, that doesn't make it right. You, you can't just contravene scripture just because your husband or some other authority says so. And that's why I believe the important part to this is Paul referring to the law, the, the Bible, as the final authority. Right, another thing that I've heard. I heard this just a couple days ago. First time I'd ever heard this explanation for it. All right, this particular preacher said, women can't judge other preachers or other prophets, in, uh, using the word from this passage, women can't judge other preachers during the service, but can ask her husband, I should say their husbands at home about the message or the messenger. So in order to understand this explanation, you need a little bit more context. Uh, yeah, starting in verse 29, let the prophets speak two or three and let the other judge. All right, why two or three? Why limit it? Because the, what Paul's trying to maintain here is decency and order. And if you overload the congregation with too many speakers in one church service, they're going to end up forgetting more than they retain. It's just too much. So there's a limitation put there. Let the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge. So the other preachers that are in attendance, the other prophets there, they are listening to what's being said. And if something is not doctrinally straight or sound, then they can object. And there's, there's a right way to go about doing that, but they can speak up. Now, it doesn't say that they would need to stand up, interrupt the service and go, heresy, you know, that's wrong. They, they, they might be able to pull that preacher aside after the service and say, listen, brother, I, you know, I heard you say this and that, but have you considered this verse? So there's a very right way to do that, a very decent and orderly way to do that. Uh, but this is the, the order or the system that Paul has set up. So this particular preacher said, okay, when it says, let your women keep silence in the churches, what it's getting at is they're not allowed to do that judging. So they cannot they cannot speak up and speak out about what that particular preacher said. They cannot ask him to verify you know, his own credentials. So that's why I put in here the message or the messenger. Because in some cases, they would ask for a letter of commendation. You know, why, why should we let you come preach in our church? Do you have a letter from some other church? Are you linked to the apostle somehow? So they needed some sort of proof or commendation that this, this guy was legitimate. So a woman would not be allowed to voice her concerns. And according to this gentleman, verse 35, if they'd like to know anything more about it, if they want to inquire more about that message or the messenger, they need to go home and talk to their husbands about it. Well, what's interesting about this is at least he stayed in the context, right? I appreciated that. He, he was using what's in the context. But in that same explanation, he says the reason that he says, the reason I'm limiting the speaking here, that they're not permitted to speak, the reason he says I'm limiting that to the judgment back in verse 29 is because other verses of Scripture says that a woman can preach in church. So when we try to put all these Scriptures together, you have a couple of the verses that says women can preach in church, and then this verse says women cannot speak in church so they can preach, but there are certain things they can't say. So what is it they can't say? They can't pronounce the judgment on these other preachers. So I, I appreciate that he's trying to make these verses of Scripture come together. He has 
the way it came across to me, he has no, like, he's not trying to be politically correct. He's not trying to win favor, you know, one side or the other. That's how he approached the text. The problem I see in that, it, it, first of all, I don't think that his handling of this context is necessary to say that the speaking is limited to the judgment only. I, th I think there's something much broader. In chapter 14, by the way, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is dealing with two issues. He's, it's tongues and prophecy. And he talks about how prophecy is better because the people don't need an interpreter to hear the sermon. And that's, you gotta understand that that's Paul's big point that he's pushing throughout this chapter. I think that helps us put into view how we should receive verses 34 and 35 when he says it's not permitted to them to speak. We're dealing with addressing the church from the pulpit, which is why I titled this lesson the way I did, Women in the Pulpit. Now, the other verses that this gentleman used, I'm going to take just a minute. Um, forgive me. I'm just taking a, a quick look at... Yeah, let, let me show you quickly the other verses that that he used for this. First uh, Corinthians 11 and verse five, which I think we're gonna circle back around to this in, in just a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, we are. We're, we'll look at the context in, a, in, a, in just a minute, but verse five, every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. So he turned or quoted this verse that says, you see, she's allowed to prophesy or preach, right? Prophesying is simply speaking forth the words of, of God. So he says, well, this verse says she can preach. Well, the way he said it is she can preach in church. That's not what that says. It doesn't say praying or prophesying in church, right? There's a difference. In 1 Corinthians 14, let your women keep silence in the churches, but that phrase, that prepositional phrase, in the churches, it's not here. So I, I don't think you can come to this verse and say women are allowed to preach in churches here, but then in 1 Corinthians 14, it says something different. I, I don't think there's any difference. Women are allowed to preach. Women are supposed to preach, but not in the pulpit. So the other verse that he mentions is Acts 21. And uh, we are, again, we'll circle around to this in a bit. Actually, it's verse 9, I guess. But we're talking about Philip the evangelist. And it says, The same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Well, amen, they did. No, I'm aware of that. I have no problems with the text, but it doesn't say they preached in a church. So because he saw a bit of a conflict, when he read Acts 21 and 1 Corinthians 11, he took it as these women are preaching in a church. That, in his mind, created a bit of a contradiction almost, with 1 Corinthians 14, that, well, obviously they can preach in church in one place, but here it looks like they can't preach in church, so then I have to find a way to work that out. I think that's what kind of drove him to that conclusion. All right, next one. Uh, th this one, I must I threw this in <laughs> more for the fun of it, actually, because th this position is, in my opinion, the most ridiculous of all the ones that I'm presenting tonight. Th this position is the other side of the story, right? The ones I've given you so far, it's all people trying to support the idea of women being in the pulpit and why it's okay. This one goes way too far the other way. <laughs> women can't say anything at all during a church service. Not one word while the service is in session. Okay, that 
<laughs> All they're doing is focusing in on a couple of phrases here. Let your women keep silence in the churches. Forget the context. Just look at that phrase. It's not permitted unto them, uh, unto them to speak. That's it. Just look at that phrase. If they want to learn anything, go, to, go home. In verse 35, it's a shame for women to speak in the church. So she cannot say amen. She can't sing. She can't lean over and say, um, honey, please scoot over. I need more spit. Nothing. She can't say anything. Oh, wow. It's, it's really difficult to um, talk about how silly that is because there's not like another verse I can go to to show you that, yes, it's okay for a woman to, to say excuse me or thank you or hello during a church service or amen or something like, like that. Um, I think when you couple this together, now 1 Corinthians 14 by itself, like I said, Paul's talking about prophesying. He's talking about the pulpit ministry, especially not just in the chapter, but in this little context, starting in verse, what is it, 27, 26, 27, right there. He's talking about preaching, right? He's not talking about saying hello or amen, singing, even giving a testimony is not what's in view here. So I, I don't think that, that this position that I have posted under me, I don't think it's tenable. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I suffer not a woman to teach. So Paul does go on to explain what he means by speak, right? The speaking engagement he's talking to is teaching, addressing the congregation, putting forth the word of the Lord in that way. All right, um, this next one. Uh, Christ did away with all differences. So a woman should be able to do whatever a man does. Now, the verse that is often quoted for this, there's a, a couple of them, but Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah, sorry, just checking my notes. Um, so did, did Christ do, a, what differences did Christ do away with, right? He did remove the, the, the wall of partition that was between Jews and Gentiles. This is true. And I mean, I can't deny the truth of this verse, bond nor free, right? Slave or master, male or female, we're all one in Christ. This is true. But how far does that go? Does that eliminate the biological differences that we have? Does it eliminate the gender-specific roles that God ordained? Is that how far this goes? Or rather, is what Paul's saying here that in Christ, it's not as if everybody has to act like a man or everybody has to act like a woman or everybody has to adopt Jewish culture. That's last week's lesson. Or everybody has to adopt Greek culture. Or now that you're saved, you cannot be a, a master. You can't be uh, uh, the owner of a company. You can't be the boss. You have to be a slave or vice versa. If you're saved, you can't be a slave. You know, now that you're free in Christ, you need to be. It, Paul is saying that now that you're in Christ, the oneness that we have is we don't have to all fall into one uh, culture and custom and set of ritual. That's not what's important here. I don't get any more value in the eyes of Christ because I'm a man. And the same thing, a woman is not, she doesn't have a higher price tag just because she's a woman. 
If somebody is a slave, that doesn't make him any less valuable to Christ. If somebody has Jewish culture or if somebody has Gentile culture, it doesn't matter. That makes no difference. We're all one in Christ. I think that's the point of Paul's uh, uh, teaching here. To say that the gender-specific roles are no longer applicable because we're in Christ, that, that just won't work for so many reasons. Let me give you a couple biblical ones. If Paul was indeed saying that Christ has done away with the gender-specific differences, then how can he write this to the Ephesians? Chapter 5 and verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Well, there's obviously a difference in roles, not in value, not in value, in the roles that they are with that, that, that they're functioning in. So that is still very much in play. You can't say that Christ did away with that. I mean, Paul, Paul wrote that in Galatians. Now Paul's writing this in Ephesians, so it's the same Paul. I don't think he'd contradict himself in that. Uh, I mean, this is abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 14, isn't it? Let your women keep silence in the churches. So obviously there's a bit of a difference in the role, in the function. I even want to say in the purpose, right? In that specific setting. And then I'm going to bring you back to 1 Corinthians 11 because I think it, I think it will serve us well to spend a few minutes on this passage because even though it's not, it doesn't always come up in this conversation, I think it should. I really think it should. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4. A lot of times people call this the haircut passage. There's so much more to this than haircuts. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Now, let's get this, whoop, sorry. Let's get this right. Verse 3, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So there's an order Please remember that word. There's an order to this. And then Paul's saying, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. He's, he's shaming the one above him, Christ in this scenario. Now, his head being covered, he will later in the passage, and we'll get to the verse just now, he's talking about a man having long hair. You say, well, preacher, how long is long? That is such a useless conversation. I'm not even going to address that right now. You know what I think it is, what, what Paul's getting at here? Men should not look like women. Women should not attempt to look like men. Now, as we read that, see how this fits into the passage. Verse 5, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. It's just embarrassing. It's not the way nature intended it to be, nor the way God intended it to be. You look at that, and I'm using Paul's argument. You just look at that and go, something's not right here. So if she's going to have try to present herself, herself as a male, she is dishonoring her head, the, the one in authority over her. She's basically saying she's emasculating her husband in, by the way she presents herself. Verse 6, For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. So if you're going to cut your hair like a man and try to look like a man, that's embarrassing. Go ahead and just shave your head and get, I mean, if you're, if you're aiming for shame, go for it. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So if, if you're not doing this just to 
embarrass yourself, then do it right. Grow the hair out. And I say grow it out. Have a woman's haircut. I don't care what style. I don't care what length. But just try to look like a woman. Verse 7. For a man, indeed, ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Because when, when God created Adam on day six, he looks there and he says, man, look at this. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Image and glory of God. And then the man, what does he brag about? Right? God, God looks at Adam and says, look, look at that. And then the man says, he points to the woman and says, this came out of me. This is of me. Now, obviously, we know Adam is very limited, right? Man is very limited as to how much credit we can take for that because it's God who did all of it anyway. But that's, we, we go, man, that, that's the best thing that's ever come out of me is the woman. Verse 8, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Now, if I can bring this back to what's sitting below me here. If, we, if we're going to say that Paul thinks in Christ there's neither male nor female, so all differences in every way is gone, uh, that won't work with this passage. The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Paul's referring back to Genesis chapter 2. He's just making some scriptural observations here. What is he dealing with? Gender-specific roles or purposes. That's it. He's not saying the man's better. He's, he's not saying one's more valuable than the other. Watch how he brings this full circle. In verse 10, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now, forgive me, I'm not going to spend long on that because I really think that would take us, you know, have to take a left turn. But what I think we're dealing with there, there are spiritual entities just like there were back in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, fallen angels and all of that. But what are they looking for? Who can they influence? Rebellious women. So if a woman presents herself in rebellion to nature, in rebellion to God, in rebellion to her husband, in rebellion to the church, in rebellion to the apostles, you'll see that later in the passage. Well, that there, she is making herself a prime target for spiritual problems. Verse 11, nevertheless, now, now see the, the full circle here? He's pointed out, listen, there is a difference. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. The way God set it up, we need each other. We need each other. So I think this is an outstanding verse to put down this whole chauvinistic attitude. Well, I'm the man, God put me in charge, therefore... You know, I'm more special, more important, more valuable. Nonsense, man. That's not it at all. God built it so that that man by himself just wasn't complete. God looked down at Adam and said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a help meet for him. Looked at him and said, buddy, you need help. <laughs> you need help. If anything, my opinion of it, after studying this for more than 20 years, I think the Bible does a lot to elevate the woman to a very special and privileged position. Right? Have you read the end of Proverbs 31? What does it start? What is it? Verse 10? Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. And then you go on for what is it? 21 verses describing the virtuous woman. And it says that the husband should raise up and praise her. Do you can you think of any passage in scripture that elevates the man like that? that concentrates on it like that? Now, there are verses that says, you know, a woman should submit and show reverence. 
But man, 21 straight verses just praising the virtuous woman? She's very special in the Bible. In the Bible, Verse 12, for as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. So God set it up to where we need each other, to where we complement each other. And when everybody is doing what God intended them, uh, for them to do, fulfilling their God-given roles, doing things decently and in order, it works really well. Look at what Paul turns to in verse 13. Judging yourselves. He says, guys, just ask yourself this question. Is it comely? Does it look right that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Does it look right when a woman is living an openly rebellious life? She is attempting to look like a man. So she's in rebellion to nature. She, I mean, biologically, she's a woman. But she's trying to be a man to present herself in that way. Does it look right then for her to go to God and God's the one who set up biology, who set up these gender-specific purposes and roles. Does it look right for, for her to then be addressing God in that condition? He says, just, just ask yourself, does it look right? Verse 14, doth not even nature itself teach you? Notice this isn't now in just in verse 14, 15. This isn't a scriptural lesson now. He, uh, what I mean by that is he's not appealing to some other verse in the Bible. He's saying, guys, it's just, it doesn't look natural. Nature teaches us this, that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. Doesn't nature teach us that? That if a man tries to look like a woman, so but how long is too long? Guys, like I said earlier, that, that is such a useless argument because it depends, right, on, it, it really depends on biology a little bit here. If you're a, especially as a white man leaving America, coming to Africa, all I heard about these passages was, you know, long hair is when it touches the eyebrow, touches the ear, touches the neck. If it, if it does, it's long. So you got to keep it short. Which, by the way, that's not why I have the haircut I have. Nature is kind of helping me with my haircut. But then women, you know, they have to have hair that comes down to the eyebrow, comes down to the ear, and covers the neck. And then it's long. But then I got to Africa. And black women, their hair doesn't... It doesn't come down to the eyebrow or the ear or the neck. It grows out, Afro style. So that whole approach to, well, let me get my tape measure out and you know, I'll tell you how long is long. No, that, I, I don't think that's how this was meant to be taken. Verse 15, kind of the same thought. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. Now, if a woman wants to put a... Uh, some sort of cloth on her head or some other extra covering. Help yourself. But obviously what Paul's saying is the hair is the covering that he's mentioning. So I think what he's getting at here is, guys, women should look like women. Men should look like men. Christ did not do away with those gender-specific differences. Men are still men. Women are still women. There are certain things that God expects from each gender now, this will loom large as we get into the explanation of the passage, uh, of, of the relevant passages later. Let me just finish this in verse 16. But if any man seemed to be contentious, so he wants to argue about this, we have no such custom. The apostles, he says, listen, if, if you're not going to listen to the scriptural argument, you know, Genesis and how God set it up, if you're not going to listen to the natural argument that he just explained, then look at the apostles. We have no such custom. There's no church leader uh, that, that does it like that. 
Neither the churches of God, the, the people involved in those churches don't do it like that. So if you want to argue, you have to go against the apostles, the churches, nature, and God. So it's a pretty strong argument that he's made. All right, let's get another. This is a big one. This one I hear more than anything. And, and honestly, the, the people that appeal to this, um, most of the time it's not coming from a, like a hard heart. This is a genuine, I mean, this is actually a logical thing. I, I understand this one, uh, but I, I do think that there's a biblical explanation for it. God uses her, so it must be right. Now, you know, a woman is a pastor, and she's preaching in church, and somebody gets saved. Or, you know, because of her sermon, uh, a marriage gets fixed, and, you know, husband and wife reconciled, and things get right. I mean, any, any victory the Lord can use that woman to bring about something good. So doesn't that prove that God is, is at the very least okay with her in the pulpit? If not, maybe we can go as far as to say God ordained it that way. Let me give you a quote. Now, this is not a theologian. This is not a Bible commentary. This is just somebody writing in their opinion. But this just shows the type of thinking. Okay, that's why I'm quoting it. Such ones as Joyce Meyer makes it clear that God does call and bless such ministries. It is obvious that he definitely called her and he certainly has blessed the multitudes through her. Right, now this is just one person's observation. They're welcome to that observation. But if I can point something out, in the middle of that quote, this person said it is obvious that he definitely called her. What's, why is it obvious? Now, in their minds, I think they would say, well, the fruit, the fruit of her ministry. Good is coming from it, so therefore, it, it must be okay. Well, you've heard the old adage, the end doesn't justify the means. Right? Just because something good came about does not necessarily mean that the vessel that brought that good thing or that God used doesn't mean that that is the optimal way or the best way to do it. Uh, let me give you a couple for instances, right? Nebuchadnezzar, in Jeremiah chapter 25, God referred to him as my servant. And the same thing with Cyrus, the king of Persia. He is referred to as God's servant in the book of Isaiah. I don't think we would say then that God is, is supporting the way that those two kings lived their lives. They were used in a very specific way. They brought about a, a certain you know, judgment that was deserved on the people of Israel. And in that way, they, they served God's purpose. But that doesn't mean that God likes the way that they lived or the things that they did. I, I mean, I, forgive me, this is, I've gone back and forth as to whether or not this, this would be a great illustration. So I please, I hope you take this in the right way. But God used Balaam's donkey to preach to that false prophet. That doesn't mean that now donkeys are allowed in the pulpit. I mean, you just can't go that far. And, and the reason I bring that out is simply to say, you can't say because God uses it, that means that's the right way or the right vessel. And I, I think if I can point out this passage here, I think this passage will help understand this a little bit better. Philippians 1 verse 14. Um, maybe that's a little too high up. Yeah, let me start in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife 
and some also of goodwill. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that these women that occupy pulpits are preaching out of envy or strife. I'm not saying that. I have a different point that I'd like to make here. So let, stick with me for a couple verses. Verse 16 says, The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. So they're out there talking about the gospel, putting it out there, but they're not really interested in people getting saved. They're trying to make life more difficult for Paul. Or verse 15, they're just trying to uh, start arguments, right? Envy and strife. Verse 17, the other group, but of the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So there's two groups out there preaching the gospel. Some have good intentions, some have bad intentions. Now, what's Paul's position on this? Verse 18, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, so it's, it's a false motive, or let's say a, a hypocritical type of thing, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now, would, would we take from this that it's, well, it's okay then to have wrong motives, envy, strife, contention, that's fine as long as you preach the gospel. Well, no, obviously, that's, there's, there's a right way to do this. Paul's point is, hey, the, the truth got out. The word of God moved from one place to the next. Great. Paul's not recommending that you uh, have the wrong motives here. He's not justifying it. He's just saying, listen, the message is what gets the job done. You say, but how is it that God can bless somebody like Joyce Myers? Or, and there's many women now that are occupying pulpits. I, I, I think the truth of it is this, that what they're saying is true. Not, not everything Joyce Meyer says is wrong. Uh, th th there, are, there are some things she says that I would, I would um, strongly disagree with, some dangerous things actually, but not everything she says is wrong. Not every woman that stands in a pulpit is, is preaching heresy. I don't believe that. It, guys, that, that, would be, that would be so wrong to say if it's, if it's a woman in the pulpit, therefore everything she says is wrong. That's not the case. She might be saying a lot of true things. And if that's the case, God can use his word. His word doesn't return void. It doesn't mean that God supports or likes or condones the way she's doing it. But the word of God goes out and it's going to get the job done. And I think the real issue here is, say, well, you know, if, if it's just the word of God, who cares who, who's up there preaching it? And... Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. By the end of the lesson, I think you'll see why it's important to maintain a certain order in the church. But when people ask me about somebody like Joyce Meyer, so well, she's you know on this particular topic, or she preached the gospel and it was true, okay. But then as a person, let's say, starts to grow, they're attending her church, and they're reading their Bible, and they get to this verse in Corinthians or Timothy, and they say, uh, Pastor Joyce, you you know the Bible says that you're supposed to keep silent, but I see you up here preaching, so how do you do this? And then she explains you know, a way around it. That's when the problem comes in. It sets a precedent that you can obey God here, but you don't have to here. You can just you know, wiggle things around and make it, just, you know, make it okay. And I, I, I think that's dangerous. Uh, this is a very, I think these two things go together, probably the same point. God has used women in the past. Why not now? Right? There are, aren't there female preachers throughout the Bible? Yes, they're called prophetesses, and there are many. Um, I'll just give you a quick list, but in Exodus 15, Miriam, Moses' older sister, she's called a prophetess. Uh, Deborah 
Judges chapter 4. There's a lady named Huldah, a prophetess in 2 Kings chapter 22. You have Anna, the prophetess. She is mentioned in Luke chapter 2. And then I showed you earlier, Acts chapter 21, you have the Philip's daughters, four of them, and they go out and prophesy. So they are preachers. Now, the thing about this list that I'm giving you, none of them are pastors. None of them are women standing in a pulpit leading a church service. That's the difference. I have no problems with women preaching. That's why I titled the lesson the way I did. Should women preach? Absolutely. I think in our church we have more women preachers than maybe the whole community put together. Because we have several ladies that go out and preach the gospel and talk to people about the word of God. They just don't come into our regularly scheduled church services and lead the service. I think that is what Paul is dealing with in these relevant passages. So when people say, but what about this woman? What about that woman? You know, prophetesses in the Bible. Yes, I acknowledge that God used them. I have no problems with that. I think God can use any woman even now uh, in, a, in a similar way, just not in the pulpit. Uh, many times they'll turn to this passage here. Uh, a couple ladies are mentioned here. Paul is greeting some people in the Roman church, and he first starts off in verse 1, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cenchrea, or Cenchrea, I, I've always said it that way. Um, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, that ye assist her in what, whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succorer of many, a supporter of many, and of myself also. So people will turn to this and say, but see, Phoebe, it appears that she had a leadership position. I'm not sure you can derive that from, from what was said there. They, they get that idea of a leadership position because the word servant, the Greek word behind that is diaka, diakonos, I think is the root, uh, which is where we get the word deacon. So in some translations, they put their Phoebe as a deaconess, a you know, female version of the deacon. But in 1 Timothy 3, Paul makes it clear that there are offices in the church. There's one for a bishop, there's one for a deacon. And I think that's why the translators, when they got to this verse and they found the word diakonos or whatever version of it, they went with the word servant, which by the way, is a very good legitimate translation of that word. Because there, there hasn't been or there weren't female leaders in, in the churches. They weren't supposed to be there. And Phoebe, from what we read here, she supports many. And she was a well-trusted church member by, by every account here. I think when we get to the very end, I'm sorry, a lot of scrolling there. Yeah, look at what Phoebe, the role she plays here, written um, below verse 27, written to the Romans from Corinthus and sent by Phoebe, servant of the church at Cenchrea. So after Paul wrote Romans 16, or uh, the book of Romans, he entrusted it to Phoebe to deliver, right? From Corinth, he says, Phoebe, you please take it to them. So Phoebe obviously played a, a massive role in the early church. It, this doesn't say that she was a pastor, though. At most, it, at most, you would say deacon, but even there, her role was simply doing the smaller jobs in the church then and supporting people. So this isn't going to help prove that there were female leaders in the early church, not like in the pulpit, not that kind of leader. Another verse that is often used is verse 7. Uh, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So the emphasis here is on the word or the name Junia, 
which is a feminine name. And some people, I think this is a very poor way to go about it, in order to prove male leadership in the church, they actually try to, to, to finagle this word, this name. And they say, it's not Junia, it should be Junius, you know. And guys, Junia, as far as I, I've studied into that a little bit, I, I think it is a, a woman that's being mentioned here. But what they point out is that Junia was an apostle. And they say that because in the middle of the verse, it says, who are of note among the apostles. So Andronicus and Junia are apostles. That's what they assume Paul is writing here or saying. I can't agree with that. Just look at how that's worded. Who are of note among the apostles. So the apostles is one group, and they have taken notice of Andronicus and Junia. I think that's all that is being said here. If there were other, lots of other verses that would indicate Andronicus and Junia were apostles, then, then I think maybe we could, we could take this phrase and understand it that way. But the way that's worded, I don't think you can prove that Junia was an apostle her, herself. She was of, of note. She was of, of great reputation because of her service. Which, by the way, there are many ladies mentioned in the New Testament that are fellow laborers. Paul refers to them as such, fellow laborers in the gospel. And I recognize all those verses are there, but it doesn't prove that they were in the pulpit preaching. It just proves that they were a massive help in the gospel ministry, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And as I've said, every woman should be involved in that. All right, so I think we've dealt now with most of the... I hesitate to say arguments, but... I can't think of a better word right now, but most of the reasons that people use to say women should be allowed in the pulpit. So for the next few minutes, what I want to do is walk you through 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 and uh, hopefully shed a little light on, on how I think these passage, passages should be understood. All right, so verse 34, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. I've already mentioned how the context is talking about prophesying and addressing the church as a whole. But they are commanded to be under obedience. Why, Paul? Why? That's the question. That's the big question. Why? Why won't you let women speak in church and, and lead the service? Is it because they're not smart? Paul never said that. Is it because they're not capable? Paul never said that. Is it because they're not eloquent? Paul never said that. I know many women that have a much firmer grasp on biblical truth than men, much smarter than men, much more eloquent than men, much more capable than men when it comes to teaching. And if that was the issue, capability, is that the right word? Ability maybe is a better word. Ability and intelligence and eloquence, if that was the issue, well, then, then I would have, I, I couldn't get behind the idea of women not being allowed to do it if that's all there was to it. But that's not why Paul prohibited it. They are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. Paul refers back to something else in the Bible and says God has already given us an ordered structure and we are going to follow that in our churches. 
Verse 35, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Why would it be shameful? Again, if you think this issue is about their intelligence or ability or eloquence, then yes, I, if I'm a woman, I'd be offended at that. If that's why you're not allowing me to speak, because I know I'm able, you know, I'm capable of speaking up intelligently, why not let me do it? Because that's not the issue. Why is it a shame? Because to do so would be ignoring the God-given authority and order in your life. God has given us this structure in our homes, and it should be in our churches. So that's why Paul says if a woman starts speaking up, she's basically saying, my husband can't help me. And I don't care what God said about who I need to answer to and who I need to go to. I got something to say, I'm just going to say it. That's why it would be a shame. Over there in the book of Titus, it talks about a woman acting right so that she doesn't, so that others don't blaspheme the word of God. It, it makes the Bible look bad. You're just kind of tossing it out and saying, I'm just going to do the way I want to do it. And that's why we get into verse number 36. You think you can just rewrite the Bible? You think, you think you're the only ones being addressed? Everybody has to go by this. Now, this idea of using the Bible to establish this order, this authority in the church, we're going to see it again in 1 Timothy, but it's, I think, spelled out even more there. I want to just show you one more thing before we leave this passage. In, in verse 40, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, let all things be done decently and in order. I, I think that's so important to understand. I think it really helps shape our thinking about this passage. That's what Paul's striving towards. Guys, we need order. We need a decent system that will work, not just now, not just here, but always everywhere. What system can we put in place? What order, what authority structure can we put in place? Let's use the one that God set up all the way back there in the very beginning. Let's use that. And that'll, that'll allow things to run decently and in order. Uh, can I slip in a quick illustration? COVID. These regulations that they've put on churches, they're not fair. It is not fair that our church is not allowed to meet because we follow every regulation as, as best we can. And, I, and it's not, I don't even know of one that we, that we have uh, slipped on. We, it's not like we're, we, we like this one and we don't like that, so we'll only do a little bit. We, we try to follow all of it. And I have no issues with sanitizing. I have no issues with keeping track of who comes to the services and taking their temperatures. No problem. But we follow all of that. I, don't, I cannot think of one case, and I asked, there hasn't been one case that we know of where somebody came to our church and that's where they were in contact with COVID and now they have it because of it. I can't think of one. So shouldn't it, wouldn't I have a, a legitimate gripe can't I go to the government and say, hey, this isn't fair. Why are you putting me under this, under these regulations? I didn't do anything wrong. We're doing it right. Because if you're going to make a, if you're the government and you're trying to make a regulation for churches, you have to keep, you have to keep in mind, right, that other churches may not follow all the same hygiene protocols. They may not be as concerned. So in order to keep things going decently and in order in our society, they have to come up with a regulation that works. So even though it's not fair to me, 
personally, in our church individually, guys, it, I understand the regulation. As much as I don't like it, I understand it. Now, how am I, what's the illustration here? You individually, ladies, if I can speak to you as individuals, you might look at your own abilities, your own eloquence, your own intelligence, your understanding of the word of God, your desire to minister to people and go, ah, I can do a better job than that guy, some other guy in some other pulpit, and then the guy right in front of me here on the screen. I can do a better job than him. Why can't I do it? Because we need a system. We need an ordered system that will work everywhere, always. And you start throwing that system out and go, well, I'm the exception to the rule. I can do a better job than him. So I should be able to do it. As soon as you switch it around and go, okay, the exception becomes the rule. Whoa, man, now we're in anarchy. Why, why even have the rule to begin with? So let all things be done decently and in order. All right, one last passage on this, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 11. Paul says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Now, I believe he's addressing a, a church service here because of what comes next. I suffer not a woman to teach. Some people take this passage to be Paul speaking to, you know, to married, uh, to the uh, husbands and wives. And the woman is not supposed to teach her husband. And I think that's a separate issue altogether. I, the, the, but when Paul talks about not being allowed to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, I believe we're dealing with a church service. It would make sense since Paul is writing to Timothy, pastor of a church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's going to talk about the qualifications of a bishop, qualifications for a deacon. So what's in view here is very much a, a church. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Now this falls in line with what we've already seen in Corinthians, so I don't need to say a lot more about that. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Again, this, I think, fits very well with what we've already looked at in 1 Corinthians 14. She's not allowed to stand up during the church service, lead the service, teach the congregation. She's not allowed to and I'm going to use what that other preacher mentioned, she can't stand up and say, that guy preaching is wrong. I'm, I'm going to start asking these questions publicly because that would change the direction of the service. That's one reason that she needs to go home and ask. You start asking questions publicly, you can shift the direction of a church service. All right, so verse 13, look at the first word there, four. Paul, why have you put these prohibitions in the church? Why are you not allowing women to be in the pulpit? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. There's an order. There's an or That's the word, order. Adam was first formed, then Eve. So Paul says, listen, guys, this is how God set it up. The man came first, then the woman came second. So when you step into the church, you're going to see that man up in the pulpit. He, we're, we're going to give him this first position up there. Again, this doesn't speak to value. It just speaks to roles. It speaks to the, the purpose that you are fulfilling. That's all. Verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now he's moved to Genesis chapter 3. He's saying, you go back and read in Genesis 3, the woman admits that she was tricked. Beguiled is the word you'll find in the... King James back there in Genesis 3. But Adam never says, I was beguiled. He knew perfectly what he was getting into. 
So based on that, what happened? What did God do? Well, let's take a quick look at what God did. Because when Paul says she's commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law, what law? We go back to the Old Testament law, Genesis, part of the Torah. Genesis 3.16, this is God speaking to the woman. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy, con and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. God put this on the woman because she was deceived. So now he says, in order to prevent this from happening, one of the preventative measures, not the only thing you can do, but one thing that God did is say, okay, now, madam, if you have some life-changing desire that's going to shift the direction of not only your life, but your family, you need to take that to your husband and he is now going to be the authority over you. And he is going to be responsible to make the final decision on what to do. But notice in this that she still has a voice. She still has a voice. She takes that desire to her husband and says, honey, this, whatever your trutul nam is, honey, this is what I want to do. This is how I think it should work. Can a woman do that? Yes, she should. This is part of completing the man. This is part of helping him. This is part of being that, you know, the complementary system for each other. So I want to finish up in 1 Timothy 2 because this last verse here often raises an eyebrow. So if I can just be clear on verses 13 and 14, those are the two reasons that Paul gives why he has ordered the churches the way that he did. He's using the book of Genesis as a template. He's using what God said, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. He says this is the best way to run a church. Everywhere, always, this is the system that will work. Verse 15, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, again, raises a few eyebrows. It doesn't mean that she can only, women can only be saved if they bear children, like, you know, saved eternally. It's not that. Saved from deception. Verse 14, the woman was deceived. And when a woman is pregnant, I think this is a universal truth, the hormones, man, they get to working. And it's a little more difficult maybe to think clearly sometimes, not always, but after, you know, I've, my wife and I have three kids and now grandkids. And I, I think that's a, a fairly universal truth. But notice, if they, she shall be saved in childbearing. So she won't get uh, led astray down some wrong spiritual path if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So they keep living the, the right kind of life, a biblical life, and that keeps them away from deception. But that's a they project, not just her. So I, I just want to finish the passage because usually there's a question mark or two that come up on that. All right, one last thing I want to say, and then we're going to be done. Because, let me uh, choose a different verse for this. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I know we saw this earlier, but a lot of times when you, when you talk, to, um, to this, talk about this subject and you say, you know, the wives should, should submit to their husbands. And um, they, that seems to be an offensive kind of a thing, you know. Why, why suppress or oppress the woman? Why push her down? Why are you doing this to us is kind of the, the attitude that this is met with. And it is almost, it's almost assumed 
that if you're in a position of submission, then you're of less value, that you are less adequate, you're a disgrace, you're, you're just not as good as the one over you. But let, let's think about this for a minute. I, I've written here, submission is not a sign of disgrace. So when we say a woman cannot be in the pulpit in church, or let's, let me word it properly. A woman should not be in the pulpit in the church. She should not be leading, leading the church services. I had one guy ask me one time, he says, well, if she can't do that, then what can she do? Man, we're just, that's one thing she can't do. Everything else she can do. <laughs> and again, the reason for that prohibition is just to keep the order. It is to show that we respect the way God set it up. But if you maybe think, oh man, but if I have this lowly position, I have to be in submission, so that means I'm, I'm not valuable or a disgrace. What about this? Verse 3, Paul says, The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Notice that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is in a position of submission. Yeah? So the next time you think, well, to be in submission is a disgrace. It makes me less valuable. Then you'd also have to say that Jesus Christ, that his position coming to the earth in the form of a man, humbling himself, making himself of no reputation, that he was of less value and that he was a disgrace? Not at all. Not at all. He willingly submitted himself to the Father. Look at the attitude he took. I can of, John 5, 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. This did not make him less valuable, less important. This was not a disgrace. This is one of the crowning achievements of Christ's life. And it was because of this, he humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, obedient unto death. Isn't that what it said in 1 Corinthians 14? She's commanded to be under obedience, he became obedient unto death. And it's for this reason that one day God will exalt him and every knee bows down and professes that Jesus Christ is what, right? That's, it's not a disgrace at all. This is just God giving humanity and the church an ordered structure of authority so things work well. Ladies, please, we welcome, we want, we need your input. We need your help. We need fellow laborers. We need more Junias. We need more Phoebes. We need more Marys, like Mary Magdalene in the scripture. She was one of, the, one of Jesus' best disciples. There are so many examples throughout the scripture of how God uses women. And by all means, we want to see that continue. Man, I hope this has been a help. Um, I've... I've let my eye wander to the comment section a few times and uh, no questions came in. So I'm going to wait just a second because sometimes a question does pop in a little bit late. If there's something that uh, somebody would like to ask, please feel free. I'll give that just a second. In the time being, I'm just going to go ahead and pray. And if no questions come through, we'll close tonight's service. Lord, thank you for your help and your time and your grace to teach this lesson. Lord, you know my heart in this. Um, Father, I'm just trying to offer clarity, trying to communicate the, the things you've taught me about this subject. I do pray that you'd make this subject clear in our hearts and minds. Lord, I want to continue to learn. If there's something I haven't seen about it, please show me. But Father, we, we respect the way you put things together. And 
Lord, help us to be mindful of that as, as we go about this, that it's not a matter of value. Oh God, I thank you specifically for my wife. I can't imagine life without her, Lord. I do pray that you give uh, all of us, but especially the ladies as we focus tonight, give, give the ladies in our church opportunities to serve you more and more. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I don't see any other questions, so you guys have a wonderful evening. Lord willing, Thursday, we will have a, uh, a Zoom call, I believe. We'll communicate that through a WhatsApp in case that doesn't happen. But Lord willing, I'll see you guys soon.